Who doesn't enjoy watching movies? It's a staple of entertainment in the world we live in, and many of these movies live or die on the words of professional film critics like my guest today. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie, and with me today is Tyler Smith. Tyler is a professional film critic, script consultant, collegiate professor of film history and film aesthetics, documentarian, host of the Battleship Pretension podcast, which just celebrated its 15th year in production, and finally, host of a film critic TV show on the Rediscover platform. He's also just a really nice guy, and I had an absolute blast talking to him for one of the show's longer episodes. Thank you to him for putting up with me for that long. Let's take a look objectively at why we like our favorite movies. Welcome to the show, Tyler Smith. How's it going? Good. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Little, uh, little tired, little overworked, just like everybody else. But, uh, but I'm, I'm always happy to be on any podcast, my own or or somebody else's, just talking about whatever. Yeah, and we'll get into your podcast a little bit. But why don't you tell the audience who you are and what you do? So, as mentioned, my name is Tyler Smith. I I do a lot of stuff right now. It's kind of uh, an odd time in my life, to be honest with you. I, I'd i say primarily I'm a, a college professor. Um, I teach at a few different colleges in Los Angeles. Uh, specifically, I teach like film history, film aesthetics. Um, that's a cultural engagement uh, when it comes to film, like everything movie related, of course. I don't know anything about anything else. Um, so that's primarily what I do, but also rec- uh, somewhat recently. Um, I started working for a small streaming service um, as a producer, as a curator. I don't know. I don't have an official title over there. I just kind of do whatever. Um, I do a movie review show over there. And yeah, and then I also am a, am a film critic. Um, and then I also do script consultation on the side. So I do I do quite a bit of things. And that's you know, on top of being a, a relatively recent father of twins. So I'm, I guess that explains that tiredness thing I was talking about earlier. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's, that's what I do. And the teaching thing is relatively new as well. I went back to school uh, uh, in 2016 to get my master's degree. And then I started teaching in 2018. Very nice. Yeah. You kind of cover the whole world of audio and video entertainment. Sure. Sure. It must've been some kind of passion there that drove you to like, I want to get more involved in, in cinema or in movies or whatever it was. Yeah. I, I always, I mean, just, you know, everybody likes movies for the most part. Um, and when you're young, you know, you, you, you like any kind of movie and then other stuff comes in, you know, uh, perhaps you start to get more involved in athletics or some different kind of hobby and movies become just like a secondary uh, or even maybe tertiary like form of entertainment. Uh, for me, they remain first and foremost. Um, I, I, I enjoyed when I was younger, like reading comic books and playing video games and that sort of thing. But uh, there came a moment where it's not like I sat down and charted this out at age 10 or anything like that. But there came a moment in my life where I think I just sort of decided, all right, movies, 
that's it. This is what I'm doing. Um, you know, the most recent console I have is a Super Nintendo from 1991. Um, I do. I did occasionally play like computer games and that sort of thing, but you, even then they tended to be pretty cinematic, like Sierra games and LucasArts and that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I, and, and almost any like cinephile will tell you this, like there comes a moment when they start to realize like, this is a bigger deal for me than it seems to be for other people. And that's the first thing. And then you wind up just sort of watching a lot of movies. And then another milestone comes along. Usually when you're like, 13, 14, 15, when you realize like, there are a lot of bad movies out there. Like there's a lot of stuff. And usually it's stuff that's like aimed at your demographic. And you're like, this is not very good. So what is out there that's good? You know, I, I definitely know that for, my, for myself, because I'm 40 years old now. And so I was a teenager in the nineties and I, this sounds, you know, maybe terrible for me. It was the films of Adam Sandler that uh, that made me realize like this i i don't think i am who they're going for even though age wise uh i seem to fit right in in retrospect i actually do like billy madison quite a bit but uh at the time i was just like this is i don't think this is for me um and it was helpful that i had parents that really liked movies as well so they kind of helped inform me on like the stuff that i that i might like and that sort of thing and so my mom had a VHS tape of Oscar's greatest moments from 1970 to 1990. So I just threw that in because I always enjoyed watching the Oscars and, you know, you're watching fun speeches, but it's also like, Hey, here are the movies that won best picture. Here are the best actor winners, stuff like that. And it gave me, it gave me, you know, something to, to start on. And from then on, yeah, it's, I went to film school mostly to pursue being a writer, but also I did criticism on, on the side and, uh, when I moved to Los Angeles, uh, criticism became like my primary uh, passion. And out of that came uh, teaching. And yeah, so it's been, uh, it's been pretty consistent my entire life, like uh, in, in some way, shape or form. It, it progressed in a way that a lot of cinephiles will tell you it, it progressed for them. Um, and I can definitely pinpoint a couple of the moments when it's like, oh, this is a, this is a big deal for me. Um, but yeah, so it's it's definitely always been a passion. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, if you were like, because I heard you say cinephile, mm -hmm. and I'm like, yes, of course, somebody who loves movies. How many movies do you think, like new movies, do you watch each month? Well, I got to say, uh, in the last 19 months, not many, um, because that's when the kids were born. Um and that actually is definitely uh, something that has has sort of bothered me as a movie person. It's like, hey, I'm 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 out there putting myself out there as some kind of authority, either as a critic or as a, as an academic. Meanwhile, I'm not seeing nearly as much stuff as I used to. Um, I do try to see the stuff that's kind of part of the larger conversation, whether it be the mainstream conversation or you know what critics are talking about. Um, it used to be. Uh, in the old days that I would see, you know, maybe like, gosh, maybe like five, six or seven a month. Now that's probably down to like three or four, unfortunately, like, uh, and let's see, like last, like for 2021, I think I wound up only seeing like 60 movies from that year. Um, so I think that does come out to, to basically five a month. 
Um, and yeah, that is definitely for me, that is unacceptable. Um, because I, I missed out on, on some big ones. Like this is the first year for me that, uh, I had not seen the winner of best picture at the time that it won best picture. Like that hasn't happened in many, many years. The movie was Coda. Um, admittedly it winning best picture was a bit of, of a surprise to people, but, uh, you know, usually I think in the past, if that film had come out, I probably would have seen it by the time the Oscars happened. And then, and I still haven't seen it. So yeah, I'm definitely in kind of this uh, frustrating moment of, of my life as a movie person, uh, because, you know, I, I do want to be a good dad and a good husband, and I want to be there for, for my family. Uh, and that does mean making some, some sacrifices um, as far as like how often I, I go out to, to see movies. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense. It still sounds like a lot to me for some reason. I mean, that that's what total, like somewhere between 10 and 15 hours, I would assume to see. Yeah, I guess movies. so. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem like a ton when I say it like that, but for some reason I always find myself like, I don't know. I think I saw one movie in this last month that was new, you know, things like that. My, my movie friends and I, uh, have, have discussed like there's, and we don't do that. We don't say this in any kind of derisive way, but like we, we read this study that like the average person might see, as you mentioned, like one movie in the theater per month, if that, and maybe it might've been even fewer, might've been only like a handful of movies a year in the theater. And that is, I, I can't, I can't imagine that life. Um, and it's again, it's not derisive. It's just my my life and the lives of so many people that I know, because we tend to gravitate towards, you know, we all tend to gravitate towards people with similar interests. But like, you know, it's it's so unfamiliar to me. Um, but it, you know, people just have different passions and film happens to be mine. And as I mentioned, for some people, movies are just a just a a fun diversion that they engage in from time to time. Sure. Do you see a lot of change happening just because we've had, you know, two years where everyone was kind of isolated and we, there wasn't a lot going to theaters, obviously, for a long period mm-hmm. of time. Do you see a lot of things changing that way where movies are being made for like your home screen instead of for a cinema experience? Uh, absolutely. Yes. Um I would say, you know, because there are, as far as directors go, like the, there are, you know, the purists who will always make something with the big screen in mind, uh, either on purpose or just instinctively. They just can't help but think cinematically. But I do think that, yeah, with with, you know, the the lockdown and people being stuck at home and watching stuff um, and just the rise of of streaming, which admittedly has been around for a while, but, you know, for the last couple of years, it's sort of all there's been. And so, uh, which meant that certain streaming services got, got more power. Other ones were created. Um, again, the one that I work for, it's only two years old uh, at this point. And so, um, so yeah, I do think that a lot of stuff has been green lit that might be seen as too small uh, for uh, a theater um, or there's not much uh, box office potential for it, but if the right streaming service makes it, then maybe this is a nice little prestige picture and, and it'll, it could get them some kind of renown or critical acclaim, or, you know, they'll, you know, you, you have a number of movies that like blockbusters that have been made for Netflix that I don't know if they had like red notice, which I didn't see. Um, cause I heard it wasn't very good, but 
you know, that's, I don't remember if that had a theatrical release at all. Um, and I, and the numbers have shown that when it comes to something like that, it doesn't have to, uh, it'll do fine on, on Netflix, Netflix, it probably sees it as just like, it would just be wasting money to try and give it a theatrical release when so many people will happily just throw it on at home. So I definitely, I can give an example that is admittedly, um, self-serving. So I am not a filmmaker. I don't consider myself a filmmaker, but in the last couple of years, I've made two documentaries. Um, granted they are very, they're micro budget documentaries. They were very they're not easy to make, but they didn't require much. They basically just required me sitting uh, at my computer and you know recording voiceover. They're essentially video essays, but uh, feature length. Um, but they, I didn't pay for them. Like the first one was paid for by one streaming service, and then the second one was paid for by another because they just need content. Uh, now they're not, you know, they do discriminate a little bit, which is like they don't want something that's just absolute trash, but you know, they just, it's like, Hey, this is something that we, that we can have. That's a little bit unique. And so the way I put it is like, I'm because of the, because of streaming, I've made two movies and I don't consider myself a filmmaker. I have no plan on making a third one. Um, but that to me is like, that's an indication of how much things have changed is if I am able to make two movies uh, and I don't even, it's not, that's not even really a passion for me, then Undoubtedly, there have been a number of other actual filmmakers, you know, who maybe otherwise wouldn't have gotten much of an opportunity. But because streaming, there are so many streaming services and they're looking for content, um, there, there is stuff being greenlit probably at a lower budget that never would have been otherwise. And that's very exciting for me as a critic because you get to see stuff that might absolutely be like worth your time. But in the old days, old days, three years ago, um, you know, studios would not have taken very seriously. So it's a very, it is a very exciting time and things have absolutely changed at the very least, you know, here in Los Angeles, we just got word uh, yesterday that a, uh, a very well-known and well-liked movie theater uh, called the landmark uh, is shutting down. And that's a big deal. Um, And I do think that there are more movie theaters and movie theater chains that are shutting down because of, you know, because of the, obviously because of the lockdown, but also because so many people are going towards streaming and yeah, it's, it's a very different landscape so much so that I'd, I'd be fascinated to see what it will look like in as few as five years. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, like you said, it's changing a lot and I have seen, you know, a couple of movie theaters just kind of disappear Mm -hmm. over the last couple of years. Uh, I'm interested to see how that's changed kind of because I don't know, you know, what things you teach in your courses and what you tell people when you say like, hey, criticize this movie or let's look at it critically, like what you need to look at. Um, has it changed a lot? Um, I'd say not necessarily that aspect, you know, the just because a film might be made with the smaller screen in mind. The, the principles are still basically the same, you know, uh, as far as looking at what a director is doing with the camera, you know, the types of edits uh, that are, are being made. Um, it might where it might have changed is is going back to, to what I was saying a moment ago. It's like when you have filmmakers putting stuff out there, 
that might that wouldn't have been greenlit otherwise. Uh, that means that they're they're probably bringing a different sensibility uh, to their movies, and it might be slightly experimental. It might be a little bit fractured. It might not con- you know uh, conform to the the mainstream idea of what a movie is, um, and so that might allow teachers and students to to approach these films and say like oh well it's doing something a little bit different but even at even as they are doing that um they're still employing kind of the standard uh run-of-the-mill criticism techniques they might just be looking at it a different way like oh you know editing is not usually this reliant on cutaways or something like that but the, the principles are still basically the same well and there's one of those things you bring up where you're like, oh, and the the way that they use the camera in each mm-hmm. scene is one of those that I think most people like myself don't think about until you see it really badly. Yeah. Like where you yes. see some like super huge long distance zoom in, I yeah. immediately think, like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's that is absolutely true. Like most, you know, most uh cinematic choices from the on the part of the filmmaker they're meant to be invisible. Um, I'm not saying that's, I don't mean to be prescriptive. I'm not saying that's how it should be, but like certainly with mainstream filmmaking, the emphasis is so much on the characters and story that most directors don't want the, the camera or editing to get in the way of that. And so they make edits that are meant to be seamless. They're meant to be invisible. Um, the camera might be a little bit more, uh, active, but you're not going to find any like crazy, uh, uh, crazy angles or crazy movements because again like they're they just don't want to distract from everything everything is kind of placed at the altar of character and story and so there might be some dramatic camera moves but it's it's only so that the so that the audience is more connected with their characters and with the story so it's meant to be invisible and then and this is definitely something that that happened to me when i was younger and i was watching movies you know, I hadn't taken any film courses or anything like that. And it was the early days of the internet. So there weren't any podcasts. There were a handful of movie review sites. Um, <clears throat> really, I was just watching Siskel and Ebert with my dad. That's that's the most that I had. Um, but absolutely, even if you're not able to fully verbalize it, people just know. People just know that something's off. Like, it could be, and this happens a lot with with sort of slightly more amateurish filmmaking, um, a shot will go on or a scene will go on as little as two seconds too long, but there is a rhythm to filmmaking and we all know it. We all, you know, we all feel it. And when a movie, uh, you know, sometimes directors do it deliberately to, they, they want to throw things off and put, keep the audience on their feet. But like, there is this, this tendency, it's like, oh, this musical, uh, this bit of music doesn't really seem to fit with what the director is doing. And now it's distracting me or like, Oh, that camera shot seems a little, a little odd. Um, they don't seem to really be focusing on anything or, Oh, that edit was a little clunky and people might not be able to verbalize it that way, but they do instinctively know that something's a little off. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that I like about film is that it's actually a very instinctive art form you know if, of course the directors and the artists behind it are putting a lot of thought a lot of very conscious thought into it but they're doing it so that the audience will feel something and not even necessarily know why they're feeling it so they're they're operating on instinct and that's 
something that's fascinating. But the downside of that is like, if you don't have an under, if you don't have a good understanding as a filmmaker of the audience's instinct, that's going to be trouble because they will know that like, this is not a sad, this has not been a satisfying experience, even if they don't necessarily know why. Yeah. On that level, are there certain examples you give to students where you're like, this is the worst usage of this thing that I've ever seen? Uh, I try not to do that, but every once in a while I will. Um, specifically, I uh, recently, because I'll do a, a lecture about um, story structure and that, you know, obviously when writing a script dialogue is vital, it's how you can differentiate characters and a story is important, but it's something that I never quite fully appreciated until I started doing instead until I started consulting for, for uh, screenwriters is how vital structure is. And structure could mean like the order in which scenes happen, the order in which characters grow uh, and just the, the, the pacing in which they grow. Um, and it, structure is also one of those things that when it's working well, we're not thinking about that. We're just thinking about how satisfying the story is. But when it's not going well, something just feels off. And there is an example that I do give of this, and it is uh, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Um, <clears throat> did you see it? I did not. You're good. You're fine. You don't need to. It was... Um, it was one of those that like Star Wars was on this weird slope to me. And I think a lot of people have made the comparison between like episode four and episode seven being extraordinarily similar. Mm. And once I got through seven, I think I just stopped watching anything Star Wars related. It's, it's interesting from an academic standpoint for me to watch the evolution or what a lot of people would say is the de-evolution of of a franchise and just see how different it is. Like the seventies were different than the early two thousands, early two thousands are different from the 2010s uh, as far as what audiences expect and what filmmakers will try to deliver. And that it can be really interesting academically to look at that uh, though. It might not necessarily be satisfying artistically to, to look at that or from an audience standpoint. Um, but there is a scene and, and I'll, I'll try to, to sum it up since you, you haven't seen it, but uh, in that Star Wars movie, which is the last one, there's a scene where one of our one of the most popular characters uh, is it is heavily implied that this character has just died. And this is a this is a, a famous character. And this is a big deal for the characters and for the audience uh, that this character has potentially died. In the very next scene, the very next scene, we see that, no, the character's fine. Character has not died. The scene after that, our other characters hey, gather together and say, hey, let's let's go and, and complete this mission for so-and-so. We're doing it for this person. And it's just like, you got the order wrong there, guys, because if we, the audience, know that this character is okay, it will be a lot less powerful when our other characters who don't know that this guy is okay, uh, it will mean a lot less when they decide they want to avenge him. You know, because now we know more than they do. If they had just switched the order of those scenes, then like we would feel just as as angry and committed as as our as our heroes. Um, and then later it's like, oh, he's fine. That's what a relief. 
Um, but no, just to reveal in the very next scene that this character is fine, it's 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 completely off. It it creates no tension, and it just lets the you know it lets the audience off the hook. And maybe that's a studio note. Maybe the the studio didn't want uh, audiences to feel too bad for too long. But it's like it wouldn't be too long. It'd be five minutes. Um, so that's an example that I give of like that is a bad structured decision um, because it it eliminates tension right away and it it doesn't necessarily make our other characters look foolish but it makes them you know they're uninformed they don't know they don't have as much information as we do which by and large is not a great uh, recipe we should you we should try to learn stuff as the characters learn it um, that's usually how we can sympathize with characters but uh, but yeah so that is a very specific and I remember when I saw that movie I thought oh thank god they made that mistake because it's a very clear mistake that I can show I can show that selection of scenes which comes to about you know six or seven minutes I can show that to my students and say what is wrong with this and a lot of them pick up on it even if they haven't seen the movie they just because again we just know when something's wrong when something's off uh even so much as uh, tension is built and then immediately relieved, um, which is not actually how we like to watch movies. Yeah, I had a weird, like, I don't know why this is firmly lodged in my brain, a weirdly insightful thing, which is like the Hitchcock level of building suspense is like if you put a bomb in a room and don't tell the audience, when it blows up, you'll shock them very briefly yes. and it'll give them a, a different second watch through but if you tell the audience there's a bomb in the room but don't tell any of the characters in the story there's a bomb like you've now created suspense for as long as that bomb exists exactly like it depends on what you want the audience to be feeling do you want them to feel complete surprise um i'd say by and large that is not necessarily the best uh the best choice because sometimes the 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 surprise can be so abrupt that um, that it it almost feels like a screenwriting trick. But to to keep the audience and the care, you know, keep the audience on the hook of like, oh my gosh, I wonder what's going to happen. Which admittedly is different than the example that I gave because this is about knowledge, not of a threat, but knowledge, you know, good knowledge, something that that our characters will be thrilled to to find out later. Uh, but yeah, it's like we know there's a threat, and the characters don't. And it's just like, oh my gosh, I, will they find out in time? Will they realize it in time? You're right there on the edge of your seat. And yeah, I mean, I, I consider Hitchcock to be maybe the best filmmaker in the history of movies. Uh, and yeah, he just inher- inherently understood, even though he, I mean, he, he approached films with an, a mathematical precision, but he understood audience instincts and he knew exactly how to manipulate them. Yeah. It's one of those when we're talking about, you know, all the things you can get wrong in pacing and where a scene goes. Uh, I tried to watch a couple of of new movies to me Mm -hmm. that weren't necessarily new movies, but new movies to me before coming to talk about like critically good or bad movies. And I watched potentially the worst one that I think. I think they intentionally got everything wrong. Okay. Just so that like you feel how uncomfortable the entire movie is. Okay. Um, what what movie it, is this? I'm curious. Well, also it was recommended to me off of a different podcast. Okay. And it's called Velocipaster. <laughs> I've not seen it, but I, I know about Velocipaster. Yes. Yeah. 
it's uh it's got an amazing like art thumbnail sure looks very good um i think i looked it up just to wonder like how they made this movie and i think it was made for something like thirty thousand dollars total that tracks yeah considering the amount of people in it i'm like yeah you spent the entirety of your budget on what minor props you used and the rest of these were like volunteers to come on the show yeah oh something like velocipaster is one of those movies where it's like it's all about the title and poster the film is a formality they yeah. it's they they came up with a funny a funny title they just need to make a poster that captures the the goofiness of the title and that they should have just stopped after that you know as opposed to it's like oh shoot i guess we got to make a movie now and undoubtedly it will be it, it will it's it's meant to be kind of silly and kind of tongue in cheek but honestly it's like well you're not going to do you're not going going to improve on that title and poster so it's yeah it, it's destined to be to be a failure even as a comedy because like yeah we all got like it's a one joke premise uh and the joke is achieved already through the title and the poster yeah it was one of those where it's like every scene was you know like you said too long even if it was by seconds yeah to the point where i was i was watching it knowing i was going to get through the movie but i paused it and thought i was just like looking at the ground and i paused it and i thought okay i've got to be nearly done with this movie because it is falling apart at the seams. And then I looked up and I was less than halfway through it. Yeah. And I was like, okay, let's bear with, <laughs> let's, let's get through this. And it's like everything I think about that movie was intentionally done wrong. Like yeah. everything that they did, they did wrong on purpose. And I'm like, that might be the master class of what not to do for a movie that somehow still got purchased and is on a streaming site. It's it's tough because it might have been done done, you know, tongue in cheek. It might have been a situation where it's like, "Hey, you know what? We don't have much of a budget. We've got this goofy idea. So let's just play into the goofiness of it." And they and they feel like, "Okay, we'll just be one of those sort of, you know, cult bad movies." It's like, "Yeah, but those movies people rewatch them because usually because they're sincere. They're terrible." But the filmmakers are doing, they're realizing their awful dream. Movies like The Room and Troll 2 and Plan 9 from Outer Space. You know, the you almost feel bad for the filmmakers that people are making fun of their film. But as far as the idea of, of having like a fun, bad movie night with your friends, it, it rarely works out. It, it can, but it rarely works out when the director's like in on the joke. Um because it means that they're going to play into that and they usually go too far and it winds up being like, well, I can't laugh, you know, I can't make fun of this because it's already kind of making fun of itself as opposed to something that's very sincere and just awful. Then it's like, oh, this is, here we go. This is fun. Yeah. And there's lots of examples of like what I would assume to be low budget films. Like uh, there was one on Netflix called Circle. Oh, yes, yes. I've heard of it. Yeah, so if you've never seen it, the whole thing takes place in like one big black room. It could be a garage for all anyone knows. Yeah. And it's just a bunch of people standing in, you know, a couple of circles. And that's the whole the whole movie takes place in that setting. And I'm like despite that, it was still propped up by a pretty compelling story. Yeah. It's, you know, the the a story does not need to be complex uh to hold our attention. Um, the circumstance might be complex, but the story doesn't really have to be. 
Um, and that's something that, that I do think, because though most mainstream films are story driven, uh, I do not, I don't consider film to be an inherently story. Like I wouldn't say it's primarily a storytelling medium. That's what it's usually used for, but just uh, it's more about using the various elements of, of film to create a, a general tone. And a lot of people who are accustomed to seeing story-based films will look at any movie that's trying to just sort, sort of create a tone and they'll say that's boring, that's this or that, um, which is understandable because they, they only think of film one way. Um, but yeah, like film can be any number of things. So you have such a simple concept like the one you're talking about and it can work. You know, if you have a filmmaker who has a very clear vision of what it is they're trying to do, you have actors that are on board, you have a cinematographer who can, and art director and all that sort of thing that can really create the space that you're talking about. And suddenly it, it's shockingly intriguing. Um, and the simplicity of the story winds up being uh, not just, you know, not a drawback, but actually an asset. Um, and those, those are sometimes some of the best, uh, the best movies are the simplest ones. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, like I said, I've seen some some high budget movies that I'm just like I'd, I'd never watch it again. Like, oh yes, for instance, some of the Star Wars movies. I know they're very high budget. I just like cannot be drawn in at this point. Yeah. Um, are the things you look at when you're watching a movie if you want to see if it's good or not, like during the movie? I gotta say, and this this might you know they might revoke my uh, my critic card for this, but. More than anything, I, what I'm looking for is to get lost, like to just get completely lost in the movie. Um, I, and I consider myself fortunate that I'm still able to do that because um, I do know a lot of a lot of friends who just because of what they do, uh, either as filmmakers or, or film critics, they just can't turn it off, you know, um, and that they just can't help but think oh, that's a good shot or that's a good performance. And the moment you think that, it's not a fault of the film, but the moment you think that, you are tuned into your, your own commentary. And I don't mean to suggest the film, that the film critics are doing that consciously um, any more than I feel like I've done something amazing by, by allowing myself to get lost. Again, I consider myself just fortunate that I'm still able to just, just love a movie in the moment. And of course, afterwards... I have to be like, okay, well, I loved it. I felt these various things at these various moments. So why did I love it? What did the director do that had me, you know, so enthralled? Um, it's usually when a movie is, is, is bad, at least for me, it's usually when a movie is bad that I become very aware of all the different elements. Um, because because then it's like, well, I don't feel engrossed. I'm certainly not lost. So now I only have my thoughts to keep me company. And I start thinking like, why am I not, you know, why am I not lost in this film? It, what is the director doing or rather not doing that is, that is pushing me away. Uh, but when a movie is great, you know, I'm, I'm right there. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm welling up uh, in, in sad moments. I'm, I'm excited when, during inspiring moments, just like anybody else. Um, and so I think that's what I look for really is to kind of, st I still want to be that 
you know, 13, 14 year old kid who's starting to learn what movies are and is seeing some amazing films for the first time and is just getting lost in them. And I, again, I count myself very fortunate because it's nothing I did uh, that I'm still, that that is still able to happen for me. Yeah. Do you think there is like a, a good headspace that you need to watch some movies? Cause I know I've gone into some movies and either I knew the movie was very hyped up Everyone was saying it was great, or I was just kind of generally not like, I I just wasn't there. Like I got drugged with a, you know, a bunch of friends took me to a movie and I just didn't really care to be there. I think that for me, at least like taints my experience. Um, Do you think that's, that's true? Or is it just, (laughs) just me? I'm broken. (laughs) No, no, no. I think everybody, you know, the, the best thing that you can do as, as a, as a critic um, is, try to leave yourself at the door. But of course you can't do that. Nobody can do that. Not completely. So the second best thing that you can do is be aware of yourself and be aware of like, okay, what mood am I in right now? Um, Am I feeling upbeat? Am I feeling depressed? Am I feeling angry? Am I hungry? Am I tired? Whatever it is. Um, Being aware of that and then sort of factoring that into your reaction to the film be like, okay, if I were in a better mood, would I be more on board with this movie? Or is it literally that I'm in such a bad mood that anything I do right now is going to suffer um, in my eyes? So, you know, you can't leave your own baggage at the door. And in some cases, I would say when it's when it's deeper stuff about who you are as a person, I'd say, don't leave it at the door. I'd say, uh, recognize that everyone has their own thing. and, And how does this film uh, gel or conflict with with yours but as far as like more temporary things like how you're feeling that particular day just being aware of it i think and and trying to you know to factor that into your your response i think that's the most you can do yeah that makes sense um it's one of those that's like i always want to enjoy my movie experience and then mm-hmm. so- sometimes a movie is so popular that I will intentionally avoid it for an extended period of time, just to like give me some space between what other people have been saying about it and how I feel about it in that moment. It's one of the things, you know, I don't, these days I don't go to that many critic screenings, uh, but it's one of the things that I like about going to see a critic screening is you get to see it before everyone else. And I don't mean to say it's like, that makes you more important. I mean, you get to see it before any, there's a consensus opinion, which means you are a little bit freer to form your own. Um, now the downside of that is, you know, I saw, I saw, toy, so I'm on, I'm on Rotten Tomatoes and I saw Toy Story 4. I went to a critic screening and I, it's fine. It's a fine movie, but I definitely feel like it is by far the worst of the Toy Story movies. And as such, it's like, well, you can really only compare it to other films in the series. And especially after three, I thought four was a massive step down. So, you know, in my review, I acknowledge that there's some, there's some good stuff in it and it's fun in a lot of ways, but ultimately I found it unsatisfying. And so I gave it on Rotten Tomatoes. I gave it a rotten because you have to do one or the other and basing it on my own feelings. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm giving this a rotten. I did not know that I would be only, I'd be one of only a few critics that would do that. So when the movie, you know, so when the film came out 
And it was at like a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it was only three or four of us that were keeping it from that 100%. I got people commenting on my review and saying the most heinous stuff you'd ever... People are like, oh, you're keeping it from the 100%. And it's like, do you have stock in the movie? Who cares? Did you like it? That's fine. I, I didn't. That's also fine. And I think the film's going to do okay financially without at a, at a mere 99%, you know? And, <clears throat> but then people also say in the comments, like, you're just, you're just trying to be contrarian. And it's like, there was no contrarian when I reviewed it. I was one of the, I was one of the early people to review it. And as such, like I wasn't responding to anybody. I don't mean to suggest that anyone was responding to me, but I didn't have anything to respond to. I genuinely didn't care for it myself. And I, I was also surprised that so many critics liked it as much as they did. Um, but yeah. And so I do think that, uh, I do like seeing movies early, even though it can get me into trouble from time to time like that. But I like seeing movies early because, you know, uh, among the many, many things that we take with us into a movie theater, cultural expectations and hype, that's also that's also there. Like uh, the new Batman movie. I didn't get an invite to see that, uh, uh, but I absolutely would have gone to see it if, if I'd gotten the invite. Um, instead, I wound up... I went to a 3 p.m. show on Thursday. It was literally the earliest show I could go to. And I did that so that I could just go in with no, no expectation. I think by that time, a couple critics were writing about it. I didn't read those reviews. I just wanted to go in as, as pure as I could. Um, but yeah, that's uh, hype is a hard thing to fight against in a lot of ways. Like if you see a movie that everybody loves and you're seeing it a month after everybody else, there's a, there's a tendency and it's really hard to leave at the door even for critics, uh, there's a tendency to go and be like, all right, let's see if this lives up to it. So you kind of have, you're going in with your arms folded, leaning back, being like, let's see if you're as good as everyone says you are. And meanwhile, if you went, went in to see it the first day, you, you wouldn't have that posture. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing to fight against. Well, and I think, you know, when you're saying like, oh no, I'm one of the negatives and people hate that. Like, I think you need all of those perspectives because when I look at a critical review of something, like I want to see someone say what they didn't like, because if I just yeah. see like, oh, glowing positive reviews across the board, like it also gives me this sense of like, there's no way this movie can ever live up to expectations. Like yeah. I need to hear somebody say like, it wasn't as good as the others. Yeah. One of the one of the worst things that can happen to a film is is winning best picture uh, because so many people will hear, oh, apparently this is the best movie of the year. And so they'll go into it expecting that. But everybody has a different definition of what best means. And so suddenly it's just like this movie was crap. You know, it, how could that ever win best picture as opposed to this movie that I love and that everybody loved and that did great at the box office? Um yeah. And so, and similarly, you know, the, the, there's a, a group of, of very well-respected critics that are part of a, a group called uh, sight and sound and every 10 years on the twos. So it's coming up uh, every 10 years, they make a list of like the 50 best movies ever made. And from 1962 until 2012, number one was citizen King. 
Now I adore Citizen Kane. I have a Citizen Kane, uh, Citizen Kane related tattoo. Um, I think it's an absolute masterpiece. For for a long time, it was my own favorite film uh, ever. But I also recognize, like, oh man, when you get a movie that is regularly cited by the AFI and by Sight and Sound as the best movie of all time, you're only any any viewer who's going to see it, you know, in the '90s or the early 2000s, uh, which is like 50, 60 years after it was made. Anybody who sees it is going to expect to just be absolutely destroyed, blown away by it. Uh, based and and it's like, well, who knows what expectations they have. Uh, and they, it probably won't live up to them. Like it's, it is a shame, like positive hype can, can really screw up a, a movie for someone who comes to it, uh, even as, even as, as short as a month late, you know, sure. Negative hype can be good though, you know, because then people go in expecting like, all right, I guess let's see how bad this is. And then you see, it's like, Oh, you know what? Not so bad. Yeah, I've definitely done that, I guess, as well, where somebody was like, oh, I saw this movie and it was bad. And I'm like, well, I already had plans to see that movie, so I'm going to see it anyway. Yeah. Like, And then I see it and I'm like, oh, that wasn't that bad. Like, they're on something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's, as I get older, in some ways I dig in my heels, but in other ways I just realize, like, everyone's got their own thing. Like, yes, I... I I've seen more movies. I know more about film history. I know more about filmmaking, but who cares? You know what I mean? Like you liking a movie for whatever reason works for you. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm not, I may not agree. I may think the, I may think that the movie's awful for my own reasons, but I'm definitely not going to say that you, that you have the wrong opinion. Um, you know, which is why like on, on my podcast, Battleship Pretension, people often say like, Oh, Tyler and David, they should, uh, they should disagree more. It's like, well, we disagree plenty. We just don't fight because when it comes right down to it, it's like, what am I going to say that his feelings, his reaction to a movie uh, are wrong. I can't say that, uh, because I haven't walked in his shoes. Everybody has a different reason for loving or, or disliking a movie. And so, yeah, like it's, I, I have my own little corner of the internet and I have my own, uh, career and all that sort of thing. My own passions. I have my own definitions of what a good movie is, but that's me. You know, it's not, it's, I would say it's not my place. I guess technically in some ways it is my place to, to pass judgment on, on other people's, uh, their own responses, but I don't, I don't actually see that as, as the role of a film critic. Well, and I have to say like choosing, you know, the, the, what you guys went with, in like discussing major movies or any movies really i have to imagine you frequently get communication from people who are just like i don't agree with you on this and i think you're wrong yeah it's i mean it's a standard thing like there's nothing particularly different from you know other film critics like it's it's so crazy to me that like a, a critic will comment on like a very well regarded movie maybe not a well-regarded movie but like a a movie that's very popular and that people like and the critic doesn't really like it and then there are people who will say like it's like you know what i think i'm going to form my own opinion like maybe you shouldn't tell people what to think it's like the person is literally only saying what they thought they're not projecting they're not being prescriptive they're not saying that you should think this they're literally just saying what they think now, if you yourself are taking that, I say you, not you literally, but whoever, whoever I'm 
thinking of right now. Um, you know, if, if you are projecting something onto the critic, then perhaps something that they wrote is hitting you a certain way. And you, maybe you feel like you shouldn't like this movie. And I'll say like, I don't think in terms of should, when it comes to liking or disliking a movie, but maybe somebody, maybe a critic made it so that you didn't like the movie quite as much. Maybe you, something that they said resonated with you and you're like, Oh shoot, you know what? I think they're right. Maybe this movie isn't as good as I thought. And that's not a fun feeling. Something that you like is now quote unquote ruined. Uh, and so then you go to that person and you take that anger out on them. It's like, yeah, they were never telling you what to think. Some critics, I guess, do try to do that, but for the most part, they just do their own thing. Um, I remember Gene Siskel, he approached film criticism in a way that I always thought was interesting where he said, he's approaching it like an, like a straightforward news story, you know, and he's reporting all the facts, but the story isn't even the movie. The story is his reaction to the movie. In which case you got to be as, as factual, you got to try and be as thorough as you can so that anybody reading it knows all the details of the story. They know all the details of your reaction. Um, but yeah, and, and I feel like that's, that's a good way to approach, uh, a good way to approach a, a, a film review is just seeing like, I can't take myself out of this anyway, so I might as well steer into it and just talk about my own personal reaction to something. Someone somewhere will probably find a problem with that and think that you're somehow being prescriptive, but as far as their reaction, but uh, you know, you can't help that person anyway. Yeah. Well, it's one of those that I think is, is fun because I have, you know, enjoyed a show or a movie and then I've had someone tell me like, Oh, did you pick up on this subtle thing? Because I right. am, uh, I have a friend who is almost exclusively like a background watcher. Like they mm. look past the main actors to see what's happening in the background. Um, I am almost exclusively like foreground. Like sure. I have, I have to look at the people directly in front of me and nothing else. So when he and I talk about things, he's like, Oh, did you pick up on this thing in the background or what they were doing behind, you know, behind the main characters. And it like, I have heard that and it's made me enjoy a show so much more because then I get to watch it and look for those things I didn't get to see. Um, so it's, it's weird when people try and take it like, oh, this has to be negative and I have to now look at the thing I enjoyed in a negative light. Like, yeah. You, know, you just have to look at it differently if you choose to acknowledge that that's there. And it's definitely something that like for, for movie fans, when you're younger and you, and you realize that your I won't even say standard, but that your taste is, is different than other people your age. Uh, there is a tendency to be a little bit snobby about it. And there is this tendency to feel like everything that people like, I will choose not to like. And I don't know if it's even a conscious choice, um, but it's this idea. It's like the ability to see through everything. I can like everyone says this is good, but I, I can see through it. Uh, meanwhile, you know, I, I felt that way. I was 15 uh, when Titanic came out. You know, everybody was talking about how great it is. It made all this money. And I was just like, ah, it's not that great. It's, you know, it's this and that. It's really melodramatic and all that sort of thing. And that was just me as a 15-year-old being contrarian and trying to be unique. Now, I don't think it's a perfect movie. I think there's a lot of issues with that script. But as I've gotten older and I've tried to shed some of that, you know, that attitude, everybody's like, no, it's pretty great. Titanic is pretty great. Those visual effects are great. And certainly 
yes, the story, you've seen it a lot of different times. The dialogue's not that solid. The performances are good, though. And I cared. I cared about what was happening on screen. Um, but I do think that like when when movie people are younger, one of the ways that they that they differentiate themselves, if film is going to become their identity, then it needs to be a unique identity from everyone else, which means whatever other people like, uh, for the most part, uh, this person will um, will find the flaw in it, not even not necessarily so much that they won't like it themselves, but they will find whatever flaw is there. Um, and then there's a lot of different levels where it's like when that person then goes to college and there's a lot of other people like them, then suddenly they wind up defending the mainstream against the other film snobs. And then you get out of college and you're like, I- I'm just going to like what I like, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like having a debate club where you just get assigned one perspective and you're like, yeah. well, I guess I have to take this one now. Yeah. And I do think that for the most part, like I, I put out a, a, I self-published a book called cinematic suffering. Um, and it's, it's essentially like a compilation of reviews that I've written over the years uh, about bad movies. But the whole point of it is not to be like, Hey, let's read this negative criticism and, and really rip into these movies. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's kind of a trick really, because only rarely will I write a review that is wholly negative. You know, even in movies that I don't really like, there's usually some elements that is worth commenting positively on. Um, you know, that it goes back to that idea of, of, of reporting on your own opinion. And if there's a performance in a movie that I really like, it's like, well, I'll, I'll mention that. Um, like, even when being negative, it's possible to be positive or at the very least constructive. Um, and I do think that that's definitely, um, I don't know. As far as online film critics, certain types, uh, I think that that uh, kind of goes against what they what they're doing. Partially because you know negativity and making fun of movies it gets a, it gets a lot of clicks. And uh, I definitely wish that uh, that my podcast had more subscribers. I wish that whatever video I put out got more clicks. But you know, I, I, I as a critic, you can really only be true to yourself. That's the only thing you really have. And uh, to to lie about it, not to suggest that these other critics are, but to, to lie about what you thought or to artificially heighten what you thought so that you can build a, an audience, I feel like is not really doing anybody any favors. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of those that I used to see and I had to just kind of like blacklist those sites from like popping up in my newsfeed yeah. would say like, Oh, five things that were wrong with this movie. And then you'd like, okay, what was wrong with the movie? And you click on it because you're like, oh, I like the movie. You go to it and the five things that they list are either the most minor things you've ever heard of. Yeah. Or they are spinning a negative into why they actually liked the movie. Yeah. And I'm like, it's just not very genuine. Like, It feels like you're intentionally lying to me to get me here and I don't want to be a part of it. And it adds nothing to the conversation. It adds nothing to the the... God help me I'm about to use the word discourse. It adds nothing to the like film discourse. Uh, it, they're popular. You know, it's always, it's always fun to be like, Hey, here's everything wrong with this movie or that movie. Uh, and that's fine. I just, I just don't want people to mistake that for like actual criticism or even an actual review because it serves a different function that is much more about entertainment, which is fine, but it's a lot more about entertainment than it is about like having a real 
conversation. Even a even a, a YouTube channel like Red Letter Media, which is comedically focused, uh, and you know sometimes they they have this this character named Mister Plinkett who will review you know the Star Wars movies and that sort of thing. And even though he's playing a character, and so some of his uh, some of his criticisms will be over the top. At the core of what he is saying is actually a very real perspective and a very real definition of what a good movie is or what an effective movie is. And so even as you're watching this thing, that's very entertaining, you are being engaged as a, as a viewer um, in regards to like what movies can do and what they can be. But I feel like a lot of these other things, as you mentioned, like really there, what's even the point? Like you watch them. It's like, this is the emptiest thing I've ever watched or read. And I feel like this was a waste of my time, but I guess they got their click and that's fine. Yeah, that's one of those, um, I think I've really enjoyed like learning about why things are written the way they are. And that's mm. probably where I've gotten some of my just general information that I have. Um, I watch like overly sarcastic productions. OSG sure. has a YouTube and part of what they talk about is tropes that come yeah, up yeah. In, in all entertainment. And they're like, well, let's talk about what this trope is at its core ways that it's used well and then ways that it's like ruined things for other people um and so they talk about things like you know having to suspend your disbelief yeah to engage with anything and they're like one of the worst tropes in their opinion is the you know the fake out death or Mm. a real death just like plugged in without like a need for it yeah because they're like you have to look at all of the potential future that this character had and you're going to sacrifice it for their death. And if their death is not acknowledged by the other cast for the rest of the movie, like you have essentially done it for that one or two seconds of, you know, hard hitting sentimentalism. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I mentioned Gene Siskel once I'm going to mention him again. Um, He's somebody that, you know, you watch his reviews and there's one, I mean, there's a lot of things that bother him, but there's one thing that he'll get real passionate about. And that's movies that like, you know, stories that put children in danger, not to suggest that uh, a, a child being, you know, hurt or in danger or even killed, not to suggest that that should never happen in a movie, but that there needs to be real weight there. And it's something that I, I, I always thought like, oh, I see where he's coming from. Uh, and then I became a father. It's like, oh, no, now I get it. Uh, like it def- being, a, being a, a relatively new dad, uh, I, it has changed my perspective on some things. And the idea that like, man, like kids are just so, they're just so innocent and they're so well-meaning and they don't always know what's going on. They can't even necessarily anticipate danger the way adults can. And then to hurt them or, you know, in some cases kill them. Uh, it's just it also that an audience can feel like, oh, damn, this bad guy's a real bad guy because he went after a kid, you know, and then and then, as you mentioned, like no one talks about it. Nobody cares after that. I do think that that is definitely um, I find that very callous and calculated, but there are plenty of great movies in which a, a, a child will die. I think Jaws is a great example where an eight-year-old boy is eaten by the shark and it's, it's horrendous. But even young Steven Spielberg is 
sensitive, sensitive enough as a filmmaker to understand why this is necessary. One of the things is the idea that like, it's an animal. It does not care how old you are. It doesn't care how innocent you are. It's just going to do this. But then also we see nothing about the kid's death is viewed as sensational. And we do see his mother, you know, we see her reaction both immediately and, and shortly thereafter. And so it is a situation where like, I think that is how you handle something as monumental as, as a child's death or a child being in danger. Um, but yeah, the idea of, of just throwing in something as casually as any kind of death or murder simply to kind of raise the stakes or, or have one little moment of shock for the audience. And then, as you mentioned, like people forget about it immediately. Uh, yeah, it just feels like it just feels very cheap and again, very calculated. Yeah, it's one that like, you know, they like you said, in Jaws, you know, they do have a child death, but mm. it also serves to like further their purpose when people are like, well, why would you set this mission to kill the shark? Why is it important? Right. And people are like, what if it's your child next? Like yes. it gives this drive to the characters that you're like, yeah, of course they're motivated to do it. Horrible things are happening. Yeah. You know, like, and they don't, they don't be like, Oh, he's, he's dead. And of course, because that adds to the total body count, we need to do something now. Like right. it drives the story forward rather than just being like, you know, a pin in the moment that was like, and here's this thing. Yeah, Absolutely. The other version I think I hear them talk about is like things that violate your uh, your suspension of disbelief. I think the biggest one was like, and it was all a dream. Uh, oh, sure. Tends to like shock an audience in a bad way because yeah. you already have to acknowledge that like this is fake coming into the, the show or the movie or whatever you're watching. And then if in the middle of it, they do horrible things to the cast and then they just cut you out of it and they're like just kidding yeah like you kind of have a hard time buying into the rest of the story because like they just lied to you about the story already what's to say they're not doing it again i can only think of maybe a handful of movies where it was only a dream worked at all um but yeah, it's it, essentially it's them trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too. It's let's put our, our characters in danger and maybe even hurt or kill them uh, so that we can have that moment and that shock. Oh, but, but we still want them to be safe. Okay, so we'll just put it in a dream. Speaking of Jaws, as good as the first Jaws is in Jaws 4, there's like two or three dream sequences where the shark like catches up with our main character and gets him. Oh, but he woke up and it's a, it's a nightmare. Um, so yeah, you, you run the gamut in the jaws series. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of movies that have some version of like, and it wasn't real. Yeah. And every time I have seen it, I'm like, okay, why either? Why did you show it to me? Because it didn't matter other than to be like, you could just show me them waking up in a cold sweat sure. and I would get the sense like, Oh, they're having nightmares. This is troubling them. Yeah. I don't need to see the whole, like, and everyone was eaten alive by the shark. Right. Sequence. Yeah. I mean, unless you are directly commenting on the nature of dreams, the nature of reality, unless you're trying to like really kind of screw with the audience's head so that they don't really know what's real anymore. And there are movies that do that and do it well. Uh, but unless that's what you're doing, then again, it just feels kind of cheap. I was going to say, it makes me think of uh, the biggest 
dream movie, Inception. Sure. Because that movie ends on the cliffhanger, was it all a dream? Right. Like it doesn't doesn't even give you the satisfaction of like knowing at the end if it was real or not. Yeah, I have a lot of problems with Inception personally. Uh, a lot of people really love it. I'm not one of them. Um, I don't dislike it either. I mean, obviously, Christopher Nolan's doing some pretty amazing things in that film, technically. But I think from a uh, from a script standpoint, and oddly enough, from an ambition standpoint, I know that sounds weird to describe Inception as unambitious. It obviously is, but I feel like it's not creative enough. It's not ma- imaginative enough. Like the idea, like think about how insane your dreams are even the most mundane dreams. And I feel like that is never, that is only once or twice, like really uh, uh, invoked in inception. You know, it's like, Oh, they're, it's, they're dreaming. They're like essentially like in an action movie, you know, skiing down this hill. It's kind of cool to have these characters suddenly be inside uh, an action movie type dream, because sometimes I dream in genre as well. I've dre- I've had many dreams where I'm in a zombie movie, basically. Um, so it's like, okay, that's fine. But within it, there's still a lot of pretty straightforward logic. Uh, and as opposed to like the really great movies about dreams, where it's just like, I, I don't even know what's real anymore. Uh, or, or any kind of film about, about sort of the distortion of reality. And so something like Inception, it, I feel like it's not imaginative enough, but then because it has that ambiguous ending, I'm going to sound kind of grumpy here. Um, I do think that there is a tendency among certain filmmakers and certain types of filmmakers that an ambiguous ending immediately it's like, oh, we're making the audience think we're not giving them that satisfaction. So they're going to go home being like, oh, I wonder what's true. What's it? What isn't? And it's like, yeah, but also it, it just feels like a gimmick. Um, there's nothing necessarily, I'm, I'm not at all opposed to ambiguous endings. I, I, I quite like them when they're done well. Um, but at the same time, sometimes it just feels like, it's like, ah, we're not really sure how to end it. So you know what, uh, what the hell, let's just have it be ambiguous and, uh, we might get some art cred. Um, and again, that's me being cynical and grumpy and that sort of thing, but yeah, it's, it does frustrate me. No, I mean, I think you're correct. I, I enjoy inception much like I enjoy many other movies. Like it follows. I like the, sure. the theme of it is really good. Mm-hmm. Like inception, the ability to just like bend reality and the subplot is we need someone to believe something. So yeah. we're going to drag them through all these crazy scenarios. Like, I think they could have done that way more because at yeah. one point they are like, you know, a doctor strange level of like twisting buildings. Yeah. And I'm like, that's great. Why not do that? Yeah. But yeah, they end up, you know, in like a ski chase. Um, yeah. Which is, it was fine, but I did like that. The ending was at least like, weirdly ambiguous because i don't feel like a concrete ending for that movie would have given me much yeah i don't necessarily mind it um in in that one because because of the nature of what the story is um the story is very much what is reality and what isn't and so having that ending on one hand it's like yeah it makes sense that it leaves the audience wondering as well just like the characters so i don't necessarily mind it there i do also just but part of me also feels like, I don't know, it, it would be, I guess if it turned out to be a dream that he's been, you know, reconnected with his family or whatever, if it turns out that that was a dream, 
then the audience would be disappointed. Um, but if it turns out it wasn't, then it, some people might think like, oh, this is maybe too happy of an ending, you know? And so by keeping it ambiguous, like you, you keep the audience from having one reaction or another and you let them have their own reaction. So that, that is the benefit of an, of an ambiguous ending. Um, and I don't necessarily mind it in inception, but I also just feel like the film in general, again, is not quite creative enough. And in the case of Christopher Nolan, an, an ambiguous ending sometimes feels a little bit like a cop out to me. Although I do, you know, I, I guess the prestige is not really a- ambiguous. It's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, but uh, I love that movie. I don't know if you've seen the prestige. But I, I have adore seen it. the prestige. I definitely. It. That is a movie with so many twists and turns that like you just don't you don't get to see the ending coming yes yes that is not a predictable ending without spoiling it's not a predictable ending for anyone um but there are things that i like you know speaking of an ambiguous ending there is a very uh not known movie because it's animated uh it's called fireworks oh i've heard of it i haven't seen it but i've heard of it it is an okay movie. I'll give it that because like, I want to love the movie because I think the ending was done really, really well. Uh, but it's a movie I saw in theaters and the whole thing, they're given basically a what if machine. And it's like, okay, what if this happens? What if this happens? And every time they ask, they start the day over with that new possibility in place. And by the end of it, the movie is so wildly far from what it started with that like reality is shattering. Mm. And so the movie sets off this huge climax right near the end where they basically, the two characters, this love interest that they've been trying to escape together, see every possibility that could possibly exist. And then they are snapped back to reality without the what if machine. Hmm. And then the movie ends with them not being at the place that they started the day. Okay. When they take their roll call for class, they're just not there. And that's like the movie just drifts off with like the teacher asking, you know, if anyone has seen them Hmm. and it it fades to black. And I walked out of the movie theater and someone else said, that's one of the worst endings I've ever seen. And I thought that's one of the greatest endings I've ever seen because there is a literal infinite possibilities that we aren't aware of. And they got to choose which one they wanted. It, It might not be the best one. It might be the worst one, but it's the one they chose to enact even if we don't get to see it similar uh to the movie castaway which i saw in theaters i don't know if you've seen it i have um you know that that one ends with a an ending that is not clear cut you don't necessarily know where he's going to go but it's also like really obvious not what he's going to do but like i mean he's parked at a literal crossroads and he has no idea which direction he's going to go and then like, oh, there's this woman that drives by. And so like, oh, maybe he'll go talk to her and maybe he won't. Who knows? But when the movie was over, I remember the, per- the person right behind me said like, what kind of ending was that? And I remember being like, boy, that that's the kind of ambiguous ending I like because, you know, in like two scenes prior, he was talking about having no choices, having no freedom on the island. He, he couldn't even kill himself the way he wanted. So he had control over nothing. And then the film ends with him having complete control over everything. He can go anywhere. He can go in any direction he wants. And that is really, 
remarkable and really exciting. So like it is an ending, like where he goes is actually kind of beside the point. It's the fact that he can go um, and previously couldn't do anything like that. Like that's that I find to be an ambiguous ending that actually isn't really that ambiguous because thematically it's it it ties everything up. Yeah. And I guess I like ambiguous endings to things now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, because I think my favorite horror movie of all time, and I'm like, I have a hard time getting into most horror movies. Okay. Just, you know, for whatever reason, um, like some of them just don't draw me in or the payoff is bad. Mm -hmm. Like it follows is not my favorite. Uh, Just an example. It follows had a great premise. There is a creature that follows you forever at walking speed and can look at any like anyone and if it reaches you you die and the only way to get rid of it is to give it to somebody else but if they die it comes back after you yes great premise for a creature the actual monster in that movie was garbage it it was so bad that i do you ever actually see it you do see it uh once i mean you see it like when it's walking at them a couple times sure sure um, but you see it kill once and it is wildly unsatisfying. Mm. I have no memory of, of what the monster actually looks like. I just remember like when it takes other forms and those forms are quite, uh, quite frightening. Yeah. Um, but my favorite is uh, the original John Carpenter's The Thing, 1981. Yeah. You really never see that creature. Like they, yeah. from what I understand, they made a practical effect of it. And then the way they were shooting it, it was so dark, you couldn't see it. Right. And they just decided to keep that. And I think that's great because like that movie leans into what is it? Yeah. I mean, that's one where you never see like its official form. And it, it leads me to think like, maybe it just doesn't have one. Maybe it has no official form. Uh, maybe like the moment it's born, it just immediately, uh, uh, imitates its its mother or something like that and then it just jumps from one thing to another and perpetuates itself but it doesn't have an actual form i like to think of it that way and yeah oh that and that's an ending that i that i really like because it's it, and again like going back to to what i'd said a moment ago there's like a literal ending and there's a thematic ending and i feel like the theme for for the thing that is a very clear cut thematic ending that like this thing never the thing never really ends and the paranoia around it never really ends yeah. um and I, that's really what the movie is about like yeah is one of these guys the you know is one of these guys the thing is one is uh, maybe one isn't i don't know and it's like yeah that i knowing that maybe that would be satisfying to some people but to me it, the not knowing is what the movie's all about so to end the movie in that regard i think is is smart yeah and that's what i said like i maybe i just like ambiguous endings cuz again like there's been a lot of talk where i've heard people say like oh that last scene is actually really crazy because when he's having his last drink with this other guy like that he doesn't drink that last drink and it could be gasoline and because yeah. the creature wouldn't know what to react like it could have been and that was his like last laugh yeah but it's like it also could not be that (laughs) yeah it's it's definitely a situation where like i i've seen videos about like you know theories about what what it could what whether it be that movie or anything else like oh this is what it could be this is what it and it's just like yeah i guess so that's what it could be or it actually is just meant to be ambiguous 
Yeah. Like you're, you're never really meant to know. So you can either try desperately to make sense of it or just embrace the fact that you're not meant to know. Um, and I think that, again, that goes back to something that can frustrate me about film criticism. Uh, uh, online film criticism is that it can be so reductive. It's all about like, you know, theories and, and the idea that, Oh, here's what this movie really means. And don't get me wrong. Like we all have to talk about, you know, when we talk about a movie thematically and what it might be trying to get at, we, we're saying, you know, here's what I think it means, but to like speak so definitively and like, we're going to get to the bottom of this. What does Bill Murray say at the, to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Well, we, we tried to decipher this and it's just like, or you weren't meant to know. Maybe it's just between the two of them, you know, like, and maybe you're not really capturing the spirit of the film by trying to decipher it, you know? Um, But that's, you know, that that's maybe that's again, me being a curmudgeon. No, I like that because I think lost in translation has a lot of these, like a lot of the same messages that I don't think you take in the same way. If it has a clear ending. Yeah. Like that movie is so, so broad in trying to cover the specific that it's covering. Yeah. it's intentionally not giving you that. Yeah. It's, it's not a film that brings you in to these characters emotions. Like both, uh, both of them are pretty, you know, keep their cards pretty close to the vest. Um, But I feel like, but for the most part, we like movies, whether they are romantic or otherwise, we like movies to, to bring us in emotionally so that we feel like we're really part of the group. Whereas this is all, this movie has always been about like, the unique bond between these two characters and that we're only, we are only ever going to be at arm's length. Um, but the two of them are very close and that is only solidified by that, that whisper at the end. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I think that's part of what like makes, I don't know if that's the art director or if that's part of the, whoever's job that is. Yeah. But like, I think it makes or breaks the movie the way that you choose to end it it makes you rewatch that movie and you're like, well, what could I gleam on a second watch through that? Maybe I didn't pick up. And if you're still left with an ambiguous ending, like I think you're supposed to just embrace it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that I've, I've said before because I know that like some critics don't really value, they don't, they don't not value endings, but they just feel it like, well, this is just one more, just, there's just one element of the film. But for my, in my view, it's like, well, the ending is what the director wants. It's the last image. It's the last plot point. This is what the director wants you to be thinking about as you leave. You might think about everything else, but knowing that it culminates with this moment, you know, that's, that's worth noting. And so, yeah, endings are vitally important, even if the film is not, not really story oriented. Um, how the filmmaker wants to end things is crucial i think yeah now i will say i know that we i know that we've been going because uh, i'm a windbag i know we've been going on for a while but i will say in the spirit of both self-promotion and you being a little iffy about horror i will say that one of the documentaries that i made is called valley of the shadow the spiritual value of horror and it's two hours and 20 minutes again i'm a windbag um, and it's a documentary about that, that explores horror, like from a thematic standpoint, um, because being who I am, I'm a, I'm a, 
person of faith, I guess you could say. I'm a practicing Christian, uh, but I'm also a big movie guy and I love horror movies. And I've had to defend that to my fellow Christians quite a bit. And I got tired of doing it. So I made this documentary that hopefully, you know, that I would show, you know, we, we entered at some Christian film festivals and some horror fe- festivals and it's been a- accepted to a lot of both. Um, but yeah, it's it, the whole point of it is meant to be like, yeah, horror can be extremely difficult, but if you're willing to put in the time and, and the effort, like there's a lot more going on here than just gore, not to suggest that that's what you think horror is. Um, but I definitely know I've run across so many people that are just so dismissive of horror and they think it's just about shocks. It's just about violence and that sort of thing. It's like, no, 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 no. There are, there are plenty that are that sure, but it might have, I, my co-host I think has said, it's like, it's the most cinematic of all film genres. And I, I think that's, I think that might be true. I think you're actually correct. And I think it's part of the reason that like, I am so hard on horror when I watch it is because I think it's the one I am most invested in. Oh, sure. Because like, there is so much to gain or lose. Like if I watch a horror movie, I could like, I have watched and listened to some stuff that like leaves me shaken to my core, like lying in bed in the dark, just scared. Yeah. Like I listened to a short story like that on podcast format. Hmm. um, And it was like, it was so frightening on a drive. I was driving home at night from work and it was so frightening that when I got to my house, I was, I had a legitimate fear of stepping out of the car. Hmm. And I, I was like, I enjoyed that thoroughly. And I think that's an amazing thing that horror can give you that you just don't like receive from some other formats. Like I'm never going to watch an action movie and be so inspired to take yeah. up whatever lifestyle <laughs> yeah. as I will be like frightened by something. Absolutely. So there's, there's a lot of that. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking for quite a while and I want to you know let you go before I keep you for the longest interview I've ever had. Oh but my. I'm interested to hear like what your favorite movie is. Uh, my favorite movie is Robert Altman's Nashville, which came out in 1975. Have you seen it? I have not. Uh, a number of people have, and it was a big movie at the time. It was, it was one of the films nominated for, for best picture. And, uh, it's, it's a hard movie to really describe because it is not uh, a story based movie. It's, it's more, I wouldn't even say it's necessarily character based. It's more of more like a vibe, um, but I do think that there's a lot going on there and there are a lot of really fascinating characters. So essentially um, it takes place over the course of one weekend and it fall in Nashville and it follows like 20 different characters as they, some of them are well-established musicians. Some of them are trying to get into the music industry. Some people have nothing to do with the music industry. Uh, There are people of various races, various ages. Uh, Sometimes they come in contact with each other. Uh, sometimes they kind of do their own thing um, and it's all handled so beautifully and everything is edited so perfectly so that like you never spend too long with any one person. And then whenever you cut to the next person, Altman just seems to instinctively know it's like, okay, we need to cut to this other person. Now this specific person, you know um, so that you always feel like, you get a sense of what everyone is doing at any given time. And also, you know, you have a, a number of musical sequences uh, in which characters are singing, you know, on stage. Uh, it's not like a, 
you know, Wizard of Oz musical where people like break out into song. They are meant to be singing. They're on stage. Uh, all of the songs are original, uh, written in some cases by the actors performing them. Uh, I believe the only Oscar it won that year was for best song for the, mo- the, the song I'm Easy, which was uh, written and played by Keith, uh, Keith Carradine. And it's just such a, it's, I think what I, what I love about it is such a big tapestry of humanity. Um, and it's one that at times can be tremendously cynical and you can see the ugly side of, of who people are, but you also, and I think the film ends on this, there is a, I won't say inspiring, but I'll say hopeful. There's a hopeful element to things as well. And I won't go into the details because the ending, while I did say that it's not necessarily a story-based film, there are developments that happen throughout the movie and then they culminate in one big event uh, at the end. And that moment could be seen as, as, as a downer or it could be seen as a little bit uh, inspiring. I would venture to say it's both because I do think that the film at its core is about humanity. Um, and the fact that you cannot sum up anybody uh, in, in two hours, or in this case, like two hours, 45 minutes. Um, and as I mentioned, like I'm a, I'm a, a person of faith. And so I often wonder like, how does, how does God look at people? And when I watch Nashville, it's like, that's probably it. Uh, where he sees a lot of, he sees everyone at once, but he also sees everyone as an individual and sees what they are capable, uh, capable of both positively and negatively. And it, it's such a wonderful movie. I, I, I would say I highly recommend it, but it's not for everybody. Um, it is a little chaotic. I'd say, especially the first hour. Um, I've watched people that, that love the movie, but they say like that first hour, even when they're rewatching it and they know where we're headed, that first hour is tough because it seems so formless. We're just getting to know these people. They're just kind of bouncing around the city uh, and it just seems purely chaotic. And that first hour seems a little bit cynical uh, because it does seem to kind of sum these people up. And then as the, then like in the next half of the film, it, it says like, yeah, you can't really sum people up and we're not going to. Um, so yeah, if you're a movie person, I highly recommend it. Great performances all around, but yeah, it is something you need to be ready for. Um, it's, it's not a casual watch. Yeah, no, it sounds like something that's I'm interested to watch now. And I've got a couple things to add to my watch list throughout sure. this conversation. So I am intrigued. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite movie? Uh, I do. I think it's one of those movies that is not it's probably not critically well received. I've never actually looked. Okay. Um, but I like it. I'll, for, I'll let you know. I like it for a lot of reasons. And I've liked it since I was young. So it's held up over the test of time. Okay. Uh, is Starship Troopers. Okay. So here's the thing <laughs> about Starship Troopers. Yeah. Some critics didn't really like it. Some critics totally got it. They totally got what Paul Verhoeven was trying to do. Um, Sadly, so I reviewed that for my school paper. I was 15. That was a 97 movie. Uh, I did not get it because I was 15. Got a little older. And it's like, oh, this might be a masterpiece. This wonderful bit of social satire is pretty amazing. And it's so easy to watch that movie and only see its giant bugs rather grotesquely ripping people apart. But there's so much going on, so many, so many comments on militarism and fascism and propaganda and all this stuff. 
and you know, when I was 15, I looked at those performances and I thought they were so ridiculous and cheesy, but then you watch them now and you're like, yes, that is by design. Uh, they are meant to evoke, you know, like, uh, films from the 1940s where just everything, you know, all the characters, emotions are right on their sleeve and that sort of thing. It is speaking of cynical. I mean, that is maybe one of the most cynical movies I've ever seen, which is not surprising given that it's Paul Verhoeven, but, uh, but yeah, that is, at this point, I think most critics are on board with it. At the time, it was definitely split. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those movies that like when I was when I was young, it was a fun action movie to mm-hmm. watch. And it has like all the themes that somebody who's young would like because it's got space and it's got war and it's got, you know, fantasy and star travel and what, you know, whatever else is going on in it. It's got a lot of it. And then as I've gotten older and I started to appreciate like the subtext of the movie where they're like, this is, this isn't just like, oh, we got to fight this one fight and it's over. Like the movie literally ends with them opening up. Like, will you join this endless frontier of warfare that we are just throwing bodies into? Yeah. And the idea that like, there's just, you know, Johnny Rico is a new recruit right out of high school. uh, And, you know, his, his, teacher i think winds up played by michael ironside i think winds up playing like his sergeant or whatever or his captain um and then by the end like rico he's the the grizzled veteran and it's time for the next generation and the idea that yes it just every new generation like every few years like right out of high school here we go uh and it's yeah it's such a fascinating and i haven't read the book i hear the book is actually pretty by design like pretty cold and then it doesn't nearly have the 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 kind of zany satire that the film does. Um, but yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with that being uh, anybody's favorite movie. I guess I wouldn't begrudge anybody that. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's great. I love it. Yeah, it's one of those that I picked up more watching like some of the and I'll openly say bad sequels mm-hmm. that it has. Like they all try and play to a different genre. Yeah, they they gave like the second one is the worst it was run on almost no budget i don't think you ever actually see the bugs in it Hmm. but the whole thing revolves around this like you know connection to the horror genre and then at the very end they kind of like this this soldier gives birth and she is out of the military because she survived this horrible experience she's out of the military but she runs into another like recruiter and he like looks at her baby. He's like, oh, what a cute kid. And then he says the phrase fresh meat for the grinder. And it's just like, it, it's intended to be so over the top and grotesque. Right. And then you think about like, well, that's kind of all they've been doing for all of these movies is like this giant campaign to draw in people to throw at a conflict they don't care yeah. about. But I think the, the issue, the problem there is that he would declare it so obviously yeah you know like you kind of just have to hint at it yeah i think i think that's why i took that away from that movie is because the rest of the movie was kind of a throwaway yeah it doesn't have any of the returning cast but it's one of those that like i didn't care about the rest of the movie but it gave me something to at least think about and reflect on the other movies that i enjoyed I've only seen the first one. Uh, I have not heard great things about all the others. So I, I figured like, and, and honestly, it's like, 
Paul Verhoeven is that unique director where it's like there are certain tones that it would seem only he is able to achieve, you know, with this and RoboCop and, and uh, you know, other movies that I, for some reason, can't name right now. Um, and so if he's not directing it, like I, I, if he's not directing a Starship Troopers movie, it's like I don't trust I don't really trust anybody else to do it. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, but I've kept you a long time. I want to make sure I can let you out of here reasonably. Sure. Uh, but I'd like you to, you know, be able to tell people some of the things you've worked on or some of the things you want to promote and where they could find you if they want to find more of you. Oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. You can't throw a rock without hitting me online. It's, uh, so I have a, primarily I have a podcast called Battleship Pretension, which has been running since 2007. It is a movie podcast with conversations very much like the one you and I just had, which is to say long and free flowing. Uh, it's usually topic based, but uh, sometimes we stay on topic. Sometimes we don't. Uh, but I host it with uh, David Bax, who I've been friends with for 23 years at this point, and, and uh, I really enjoy doing it. We've ha- we've had some really fun guests on over the years, uh, but you can find that at battleshippretension.com. Um, I also, let's see. Oh, and as a function of Battleship Pretension, last year we put out a book, The 101 Best Movies of the 2010s, um, which is long and in-depth, uh, and it's available at battleshippretension.com. And then... I mentioned the two documentaries that I that I made. One is called Real Redemption, The Rise of Christian Cinema. Uh, and then the other is called Valley of the Shadow, The Spiritual Value of Horror. So both of them are faith-based kind of. But, uh, but yeah, the first one is more about uh, tracking like the, the church's relationship to Hollywood through history, ultimately culminating in the creation of the of faith-based cinema, uh, which by and large I don't enjoy. But yeah. Uh, you know, I have opinions on and they come through in the film. Uh, and then I already mentioned what the, what the other documentary is about. It's about horror movies. Uh, those are both available on the rediscover television streaming platform, which is the platform that I work for now. Um, and yeah, I think there's other stuff, but you know what? I'm going to leave it there. All righty. Well, thank you again very much for being on the show. I have appreciate this immensely and i had a lot of fun having this conversation because it lets me look at things from your perspective and a little bit of validation for my own opinions sure absolutely absolutely and you know that's i i i've i've heard that sort of thing before in regards to just the idea of of film critics like when a critic likes something someone's like oh so i'm not i'm not a moron it's like everyone has a different again everyone has a different uh idea of what a movie can be everybody things resonate with people for different reasons and uh yeah critics are they they shouldn't necessarily be there to validate opinions or contradict opinions they're there to just only in my view to sort of deepen our view of what film can be um but yeah any any critic who says that you've got the wrong opinion i don't know i it feels like they're they're going backwards Well, thank you very much. And uh, maybe we'll speak again for some more, some more fun film topic. Absolutely. I'm totally on board with that. Awesome. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with people that you know. It's the best way to help us grow. If you want to exercise your inner critic after listening to our expert, head on over to iTunes or Spotify and leave a review detailing the flawless execution this show is not known for. But do actually leave a good review. Please? 
It also only takes a second, and it means a lot to me and to the show. If you want to suggest topics or have questions for guests, reach out to me, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, the rankings have changed a little bit more for this month. Number one is still the United States, and this month it has its highest all-time percent of audience for a month, so it is controlling the top of the board. Number two, Canada, with Alberta now beating Ontario for best province. Three, France, enjoying a major return to the top chart. Number four, the United Kingdom. And number five, Mauritius. Mauritius. Someone tell me how I'm pronouncing that wrong. I'd never actually heard of this country before, but some research shows me it is a small island off the east side of Madagascar, which is awesome for the show. I think that about covers everything. I'll see you all next week. Buh bye bye